Greenagers, welcome back into another episode of The Canon, the only movie podcast providing you with the most essential movie watch list. Uh, today we've got another great episode for you. We're going to be talking about John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. I'm joined by a very special guest, uh, someone who I've enjoyed talking about movies with for the last couple of years. You know, ever since we met, we really just like hit it off. And uh, he has a bunch of interesting things to say about movies. He works in the industry. Screenagers, welcome to the show, my good friend, screenwriter, scriptwriter, uh, Connor McKnight. Connor, how are you? What's going on? Very good. To be talking about the thing, nothing better. <laughs> so before we get into the thing itself, uh, like I mentioned, you are a writer. Obviously, the big news in the world of screenwriting is the strike, uh, the Writers Guild strike that just ended. I'm curious about how you experienced all of that, how you are experiencing you know, the, the agreements that were made and all that stuff. So I feel like I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about your thoughts on all of that stuff before we actually get into the thing, if that's cool. So if you could just maybe give us a little bit of background about, um, you know, your lifetime as a writer, um, you know, sort of what that means, bring us into your world a little bit. And then from there, sort of talk us through how you experienced the strike and what things are looking like, uh, you know, within your industry uh, coming out the other end of this. Yeah. Um, well, it's definitely a tumultuous period. Um, I think a lot of, you know, Hollywood changes a lot um, in terms of streaming, in terms of what genres work theatrically and so on and so forth. And I feel like a lot of these sort of labor disputes we end up, having are related to shifts in the industry. And so this sort of felt like a reaction to some shifts that were happening, especially in the TV space. Um, and so the kind of, you know, it was an unfortunate period just in terms of conflict and maybe not having a speedy resolution that would bring everyone back to work. Um, but yeah, the, the great kind of silver lining is it is kind of resolved and we get to do the thing that we, you know, moved to L.A. to do, um, which is very nice, um, especially because, you know, it's it, it, it is a passion that, you know, drives you to pick a career path like that. And it comes with the territory of freelance and it's tough and sometimes bigger industry things make it a little bit tougher. But it's very nice to be on the other side of it. Yeah, and get back to what we love. Sweet. Well, I'm happy that you're getting back to actually writing. One of the reasons why I wanted to to talk to you about the thing specifically, one, I know that it's one of your favorite movies, but your sort of wheelhouse for writing and just like film fandom is the horror genre. So I know you like write a lot within that space, which is obviously, again, why we're bringing you in to, to talk about this movie. What is it like about this genre specifically that sort of like speaks to you yeah there's a there's a lot of it's a it's a good question and there's a lot of elements to it one i think i mean personally it's a favorite genre to watch first and foremost i think that's um for a lot of i think creatives it comes down to at the end of the day what is your sort of favorite thing to consume and that ends up being what you create that's what inspires you you watch something like mm -hmm. the thing and want to write a creature feature like that's kind of comes with the territory but you know, there's an interesting, there's a couple reasons why I like horror. One, I think there is a fascinating magic trick that's pulled that a 
two-dimensional image that can't fundamentally hurt us can scare us. Mm-hmm. Um, that you get so sucked into a story that the threats and the stakes, the characters encounter, the monsters and everything feel real enough in that moment that a movie can make you jump, that it can make you sweat. Like that's a really, I think, cool audience to movie interaction that I don't think you get in other genres. Yes, mm. an action movie can be very thrilling. Yes, a comedy can be very funny, but there is a very interesting relationship between an audience member sitting there in a dark room surrounded by other people that you even forget that they're there and experience Mm -hmm. something that causes some sort of primal reaction. And what's always been cool for me is there are people that love that and there are people that hate that. There's no middle ground. You're either all in or (laughs) you really don't like how that movie makes you feel. And actually, it's you, you started with this conversation about the strike. Um, and we asked the question of genres that have really survived, especially as theatrical movie-going experiences. And I don't think it's a coincidence that horror specifically lasts, that, that for a lot of us going to that theater on a Friday night, a packed crowd of other people who like this stuff, like that, that is kind of ritualistic. It is, you don't get that experience. Yeah. You can scare yourself sitting there watching at home, but with other people, it's it's an interesting collective sort of genre. Uh, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of like, there's a weird interaction that's happening between audience and and creative that you really don't don't get. There's like a participation from the audience. So when you're writing horror specific, you know, movies, are you? Are you thinking about that audience interaction and that audience sort of like back and forth that's happening? Is that something that you're actively thinking about? All, all the time. Of, It's more of when you're writing it, you're putting yourself in the shoes as a fan. I think that's kind of – and again, it's why I think a lot of other horror create like we all kind of have a lot of fun doing what we do because it's – you know, when I'm sitting there and I'm writing something, it's like, okay, not only what scares me, but I'm like, okay, I'm in the scene – there's the loud noise that happens over there. I know I'll jump during that. Like you, you really are um, orchestrating that sort of thrill ride experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of fun in the creative process. And when we get into the thing, like the thing does a lot of really cool things about the information it gives the audience, what it shows the audience and what it doesn't show the audience and how that builds the paranoia and the suspense. And it's kind of a, it be, yeah, it's, it's a fun to be under the hood of that and to be creatively putting those narrative events in a certain order to scare someone or create that reaction, I think is, that's what we live for. It's like, it's like very much you. So yes, long story short, you are thinking about the audience reaction because you're thinking Mm -hmm. about when you're going to scare them. You're thinking about the tension you're building in the sequence. You're thinking about the information you give them that when something scary happens, they have a little bit of information to understand it, but not enough to be not afraid of it. And it's, so it, it is that sort of, mm. it's a it's a very fun narrative balancing act to create stories like that, or that's as an art piece too. Um, I think that's a lot of fun. That's rad. That's, um, I, you know, I am someone who does actually live in that weird sort of middle ground between I'm not all in on the genre, but I don't hate it. Like I definitely appreciate what it's doing. And there are a ton of horror movies that I love, including this one. 
Uh, but there are also so many that I will stay away from for, you know, my remaining years on this, on this earth, but that's okay. Um, so I think all this background is super helpful for, for us sort of understanding like where you're coming from when it comes to the thing and like your background as a, as a creative and, you know, someone who is, who's telling stories sort of similar to the thing and, and why, you know, that makes you an expert in, in, in terms of, you know, why you're, t why you're here with us to talk about this particular movie. So I think with all that being said, there's gotta be, there's going to be plenty of stuff for us to talk about uh, with regards to the thing. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the movie itself. Uh, like I said, John Carpenter's the thing from, from 1982. It's, I don't know what, is it a follow-up to big trouble in little China? No, it's before it. It's right after escape from New York. Uh, okay, so he's got he's, he he does Halloween, then Escape from New York, which is also with Kurt Russell, and then we get to the thing. So I don't know if you have any sort of like general background info about how the thing sort of came to be, how John Carpenter came to be attached to it to be the director for it or anything like that. But if you do have any of that background, I feel like it would be helpful before we get into movie itself. Not too much. He also did, he had done, so he did the, it was Halloween. He has the fog there too, which is another kind of cool um, one he did and then escape from New York. Most of what I know about the actual production of the thing is more of the reception and how it was super poorly received. So he ended up doing Christine next, mm -hmm. but that this is a movie that again, and horror I think is a very cool genre for this that withstood the test of time that people started discovering it later and realizing, look, Carpenter has a great filmography of a lot of bangers, really, really strong movies. Um, yeah. And it's cool that this one found its time in the sun retroactively of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like it was when it originally came out, it was sort of critics didn't like it. The audience wasn't totally responding to it, but then over time it totally found its audience and is now considered uh, a classic, a an essential. It's in the canon, obviously. So you're one of those audience members that sort of found it later on down down the road. Walk me through like your first time seeing this movie, how you responded to it then. Was it something you fell in love with immediately um, or not so much? And like, what's your overall relationship to this movie? Yeah, um, so I was, God, I was either 15 or 16, um, I was in high school and I was watching a lot of horror. I'd obviously watched Halloween. I had watched my, my dad loves big trouble in little China. So I'd watched that young. I, I very well worked Carpenter. Um, and yeah, I was going through sort of his list. I think I watched the fog maybe before that and saw this movie. I, I so I grew up, I really love alien alien is mm -hmm. like one of the, like, quintessential i call it the holy trinity the halloween alien and the thing those are like love it in the pantheon of like horror movies that are above and beyond most other things that exist uh um, talking about connor's personal canon it's like those three movies and then everything else yeah uh <laughs> there's some modern ones that i can consider in that arena but yeah. those three are like i have seen all three of those too many times to count. Uh, I watch Halloween every week of Halloween every year. Um, I love that. <laughs> it's just like 
to me, it's just like perfect. Um, but this one's not far off either uh, for a lot of different reasons. But when I watched it, it was the twofold. Because I'd already seen, obviously I'd seen Jaws. And I feel like this does some similar things with Jaws of introducing. So that's what I was immediately struck. Is like, before we get to the glorious creatures and the practical effects and everything mm-hmm. crazy that actually happens, there's some great fear of the unknown plotting of introducing ideas of we don't know why the Norwegians are shooting at the dog, but there's something weird going on. You go to their camp or their, their version of a research center and you see the aftermath, you see the strange body, you see the fucking, uh, am I allowed to swear on this thing? (laughs) That's fine. Uh, We can edit it out. Um, (laughs) You see the ice block and what was in there is now gone. You see the excavation site. So it, so that was the first thing that struck me of it really built this idea that there was something horrible out there. And then when you see how horrible and how visceral it actually is, it's just a really, there's nothing else like it. And then there's the paranoia. It has everything. It has a little, there's a little bit of an Agatha Christie in it of who in this camp could possibly mm. You have a great 80s character, McGreedy, that is, you know, Kurt Russell at his finest. It's one of the best character intros of all time with him playing chess and dumps, loses playing the computer, dumps his whiskey inside of it, short circuits it, and says, cheating bitch. And that is his first line in the movie. Like, or I think it's his second, but it's still just like a great way to into his character. Uh, and then he steps outside and you realize it's daylight and he's drinking. So it's like, these are just great little beats. But yeah, in terms of, look, it's almost even unfair to call this a B-movie because I think it's so much better than that too, even though I love Mm B-movies. But it is just, to me, we just don't get monster movies that creative, that over-the-top, that surprising, um, well-structured, great location. I don't think it's a coincidence anytime anything's ever set in Antarctica, the thing is in the background of it, of like, they're they're playing with that because i think this movie for a lot of people that play in the genre space is one of the iconic ones and that is yeah so anyway when i watched it i was like all right this one is this is (laughs) um and yeah and then i've seen it way too many times since then and i got to watch it again literally last night for this so great um (laughs) so you were you were immediately in you were immediately just sold Um, Yeah, and I think maybe the caveat is also, you know, the time period that I was watching it, too, of revisiting, um, you know, I grew up with a lot of these horror movies, but starting to watch a lot more of them in a moment where, you know, high school, late 2000s, it was post that really mean horror of after 9-11, we got hostile, we got saw, horror was this very, very real, visceral thing, the slasher reboots that we got from the 80s are very hard, extremely well-made, and pretty good movies. But mm-hmm. horror was super-duper mean. And then here is this movie that has nihilism in it. It is existential, but it's mm-hmm. just a great time creature feature um, that is so unapologetically creative. And I'm like, it's just, it's awesome. That's such a is great that any question? Yeah. <laughs> no, that I mean, that's an amazing answer. And I really love what you brought up about you know when you were watching this for the first time and sort of what was going on in like your world around you as a movie watcher because i think that 
that does play into how you respond to it the first time. And I think honestly, like when you're watching a movie for the first time, that is going to then inform how you understand it for the rest of your viewings after that. And obviously we weren't alive in, in 82 to see this in, in theaters where we're both young, young strapping men. Um, <laughs> so we weren't around in 82 to, to catch it in theaters. So like, we don't, we don't have that context of like what was going on then, but we do have, you do have the context of the first time that you watched it, which I feel like is super important to, to how you understand the movie. I think otherwise within that answer, you brought up a lot of really interesting stuff, a lot of really cool jumping off points where we can, you know, where we can take the conversation next. So, but I think what I, what I do want to ask you next uh, to just sort of like set the stage for the rest of the conversation is obviously with your background as a, as a screenwriter, you're approaching movies from a different sort of viewpoint than most audience members, like Mm -hmm. your insight. And because of the, the work that you do and, and the world that you live in, in your day to day, that allows you to watch, you know, movies in ways that the rest of us cannot. So I just, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how this movie just works on like a script level. I, I think you, you did mention some of the stuff like, uh, like Max introduction as a character and how great it is, but I kind of want your overall thoughts on, on how this movie is working script wise, because I don't think it's necessarily the first thing that people think about when they think about like, why is the thing great? But I feel like you can explain it in a way that, that maybe others can't. Well, yeah. Cause I, I also think it should be remembered for some of those great horror fear of the unknown things um, they're doing. It's, it's interesting to also, I think, you know, the older you get, especially if you've seen these movies a couple times, like watching it last night again, you 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 approach it from a different perspective. Um, I think more now versus when I was watching it in high school, it's you're you are you're right. You're more analytical about these movies. What is it doing with each of these subsequent beats? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things greatest achievements of a movie, and by God, there's a ton of them, is that opening act. We have that little teaser of, okay, there's a ship, it crashes, we have no time stamp, we don't know when, and we eventually learn, I think it's like 100,000 years ago, whatever. Yeah. But the movie opens with men trying to kill a dog from a helicopter, which is crazy. Yeah. There should be an assault rifle at it. Um, we don't know why. If you had never seen the thing, you didn't know, you're going in, you know, that's a, sorry, that's a tragedy of movies these days that we're usually... We know what we're getting, but mm-hmm. pretend for a second that you live in 82. A friend tells you, hey, we're going to go see this movie thing. You know nothing about it, right? Mm-hmm. You start this movie. These foreign guys in a helicopter are shooting at a dog running for its life. You know nothing about that. You don't know why they're trying to shoot a dog, which is crazy. It's a crazy thing to do. It's like a, it's a cinema sin to kill a dog in a movie. But here these guys are shooting a salt rifle at a helicopter at <laughs> it. Which is the, uh, but it, it immediately starts this narrative question in the audience's mind. And that's like, and that's yeah. all that, that first act until you actually see the thing creature for the first time in the dog pen is planting those seeds of why are they doing this? Okay, they're shooting at the dog. The dog seems cute. He's willing to shoot men to kill the dog. Therefore, the dog has to be something bad. 
it is what's I'm I'm not a playwright at all, farthest thing from it. But like it's like Chekhov's smoking gun. It's like you have put the there's a bomb inside the U.S. base, and we don't know what it could possibly be, and it's just sitting there. It's it's building, and that's okay. The Norwegians are acting crazy. We introduced McGreedy, and now we're going over to the Norwegian base, and we see this horrific aftermath. That's another question in the audience's mind of, you know, what what could possibly have caused all this? And and they show so they show us all these indications that something horrible is afoot, and we make that assumption, but we don't know definitively until we actually see it for the first time. And that, and just that is really strong horror writing. That is leading the audience to this idea that there is horror in the midst of all these characters and all these men we're meeting for the first time, mm-hmm. but they don't know it yet. And so like the audience is ahead enough of the characters, but not ahead enough to be able to guess where it goes. And just where it goes is so surprising that that's, again, that's just the strength of um, what they accomplished here. Because I really do just, by and large, I think it's a very strong piece of horror writing. Yeah. That, I mean, like, like you said, that that opening act is is absolutely insane. And I love what you're saying about the audiences ahead of the characters enough to sort of know that something is strange, but it's not like full-on uh, dramatic irony where we know something that the characters don't know. And, you know, we don't really know that the dog is, is the thing side note about that opening. So I watched this with Dorothy who, who, you know, uh, very well. And, you know, she got through about 20 minutes of the movie. So she saw that opening scene and anytime she sees a dog in a movie, she, she jumps up and goes, Oh, what a good boy. And no matter what the dog is doing, the dog could be the most evil dog, like ripping people apart. And she's like, oh, it's a good dog. It's a good doggy. We love that dog. So her first question was, why are those guys shooting at the dog? And I wanted to say, because that dog is a fucking evil, crazy alien thing that is going to infect the entire base. Uh, the Norwegians knew. So, yeah, it, it was it was cool to like watch it with someone who was experiencing it for the first time and asking those questions that that you were talking about you know in terms of, of like how the the movie opens up are there are there any other examples of like great writing that you see sort of beyond that first act or is most of it just like right there no 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 that's and that's the and once you get into the meat and potatoes of the second act of first of all there's some hilarious dialogue about you know getting flamethrowers and stuff but like in terms of the actual structure of the story it's like the paranoia that is threaded in that middle portion is mm-hmm. so it's right out of Agatha Christie, but we're in a monster movie. Someone around, it's not someone around us is a murderer. Like you get in a clue thing. It's like, Oh, there's a dead body who, which one of us could have done it. And we're going to do the whodunit thing. No, the whodunit here is one of us. It's not just an imposter. We're an absolutely disgusting extraterrestrial creature and these are very and, – and we don't know who it is. And we don't know – so there's a combination of that and them trying to figure out what what on earth – you know, what the fuck is going on. And the indications they have to figure that out are like, hey, we put a dog in a dog pen and it turned into the most disgusting thing imaginable that we don't even have words to describe. 
that paired with the corpse that looks like farthest thing from human. The organs are, it's just like the autopsies, all these context clues that they're giving mm -hmm. us suggest something unfathomable. And the realization that one of the other men or multiple of the other men in this space mm -hmm. could be that very same thing drives so much paranoia between those characters throughout the entirety of the second act that it's just, you know, it's, it's just a really, you know, we always, it's funny. He's making that eighties. Nowadays, everyone talks about the contained thriller, right? Can you do mm -hmm. a thriller, a horror movie in one location to keep the price down and that sort of stuff. What we have is a pressure cooker contained thriller with the craziest elements imaginable, the most creative elements imaginable. And any single character can be, not who they appear to be. And that's just yeah. enough to really drive a great horror movie. Yeah. Um, I the love the paranoia testing. Is, so, uh, the paranoia is absolutely great. I love the the connection that you're making to like an Agatha Christie, you know, Booker story, because it really does have that whodunit sort of vibe, but with this creature feature sort of twist that really makes no sense. It's a, it's a chamber piece. Uh, so it's obviously super claustrophobic. I think the setting of Antarctica is amazing because it forces these characters to be isolated in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really like the only way to tell the story. Like the story would not work in any other location where these guys would be like remotely close to some other sort of form of civilization. And the paranoia that just like continues to grow and drive the tension is absolutely brilliant. Do you think that any of the characters at any point are paranoid that they themselves could be the thing? And it's not just the paranoia of that guy could be the thing, but also I don't know if it's infected me. I might be taking too much of a leap with that. So I was wondering if, if you got that at all. Uh, no, I, so I don't think you're taking a leap at all. Um, that's why I'm like, I love the testing scene. Um, because that's it's one of the interesting. There's a couple. There's two folds and things in what you said that I want to unpack. One, in what's interesting about McGreedy as a character is he is mm -hmm. so self-assured that he is not the thing, and that's different than some of the other characters. I feel like in that testing um, scene, I think it's Windows, the guy that was the radio, um, yeah, with the little the look on his face when they're about to test him, there's, it's a little bit existential. It's like, there could be a moment, the realization that I actually am the monster. And I think that's, yeah. maybe I'm over reading into it, but I think that sort of just, again, it's just a small sliver of a question in the back of a character's head of, mm -hmm. am I, if I was this thing, would I be sentient enough to know that? Or is this beyond that? Because they don't understand these creatures. And that's one of the best narrative friends of this movie is because we're happening in real time and all this crazy shit is going on all around them that there's just because they can never firmly understand it there's just the doubts for everything that's the paranoia that's anyone around them could be it i could be it an animal could be it like as far as they're concerned an inanimate object could be it um and i but that's also to the isolation of it all there's first of all they drop the word cabin fever in the line so, somewhere in the movie, I think early on in the first act, he feels like the ultimate shining reference. But like that, that's yeah. kind of what it is. Is like this character is isolated 
can come to crazy self-assessments. I also think there's a great line. There are a couple really good setup lines for that isolation is post everything with the Norwegians and the helicopter and the guns and the dogs. I feel like it's McGreedy, but it might be someone else says, are we at war with Norway? Cause they wouldn't, they wouldn't know unless they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because, it, and that's a great way to say, okay, that's putting you as a writer. You're putting them in the frame of mind of these characters. Cause they are isolated from the world. Windows not being able to get anyone on the radio because they haven't been able to get them in two two weeks. That's like mm-hmm. the ultimate horror movie hack of getting rid of the they can call for help solution. So now yeah. they're trapped with the problem themselves. But in this location, it feels totally natural. And it feels equally natural that his boss is on his ass about finding a way to connect with someone, even though that's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I like that existential thing you're talking about, this idea that because they don't fully understand this thing, if I was that thing, would I under, Would I know that or did yeah. it just happen without my knowledge? Because that's, that's a scary thought. Um, yeah. I think that's a way scarier thought than, you know, this dude next to me might be the thing. Just knowing like, am I, am I a monster? Yeah. Would I know if I, if I were said monster? But yeah, so I, I also think that the isolation pieces is super interesting and I feel feel like the movie does a lot of interesting like camera work which is obviously you know i think that's a tool that gets really overlooked when we think about like i guess what you in tv would call a bottle episode or a chamber piece or some you know in in movies where you have these people and they're and they're stuck in a small environment and you're like well Good cinematography means like when something is big and the camera moves around a lot and there are pretty colors, but good cinematography could also just mean using the environment that you're shooting in to like help tell your story. And if you're using a lot of close up shots in a movie that's about, you know, the paranoia of claustrophobia, then that's also good cinematography. I don't know if you've mentioned it yet on this episode, but you are the son of a, of a DP. So cinematography is, is also something that's sort of, you know, in your blood. Is, is there anything within the way that this movie is shot that like sticks out to you uh, in any sort of particular ways? Well, there's a, there's a twofold in that question. Um, one, first of all, I love the guy, roll, the, the chef rollerblading and that helps us build out the location it is very yeah. awesome. It, feel, it feels very much, again, I'm going to say shining twice. So it feels very much like Danny on his, you know, little tricycle riding yeah. through. Um, but what's interesting putting those two side by side is, in The Shining, Kubrick is using that Danny as a means to illustrate how expansive the Overlook is, whereas here, Carpenter is using that to tell us how contained it is. And mm-hmm. I, I think there is an art, especially in these chamber pieces, and this is director too, um, I'm a, both DP and director working together, is how can we take a contained space and over the course of a usually thriller horror narrative, make it feel smaller and smaller and smaller over the course of the story. Because that, because that's, mm. you know, the, the thrill of the thing is this idea that you're trapped inside with something you don't understand and how do they convey that and how they shoot it and how they make that space itself, not only feel like a character, everyone always says that. And it's more than that. It's how does the space feel like a noose and how can you make that space feel tighter and tighter and tighter over the course of a nightmare. And that, look, I think the box, I think a lot of this is 
again, an underappreciated element of the thing is crowding those hallways and those rooms with so much clutter. It makes them feel smaller, um, which is the point of the story of that. You know, if, if it felt like wide open, empty spaces um, when you're doing an autopsy or you're putting there when they're they're putting those bodies where McGreedy has to get his gear out because they don't have enough room. That room feels claustrophobic, even though there's an alternate version of that story where you take all those items out and it feels expansive. Yeah. Um, which is you have not the bodies like there. sitting on the pool table right next to yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> The, the one of my favorite, and this is just about how do you make the audience feel that things are constricting is when they're doing that test and they tie all three of those guys together, they're putting them. And these are like, you know, they're strapping men, they're hardened men. They're living out there in the end. And when they all feel small, even childs who's, you know, as humongous are like when they all feel small, we feel tighter. And it's just, and that's, again, these are all the elements that are working so well in this movie to make us feel a certain way. Um, yeah. Um, Using every, every tool in your, in your toolbox to, uh, to tell the story and, and convey the emotions that, that you want to uh, convey as, as a filmmaker. So, so you mentioned Childs, and we talked a little bit about Mac. And I think you mentioned this before, that one of the great things about this movie is there's some really cheeky character development that's done and there's not a lot of time or space really for a lot of these characters to breathe, but they do all seem super fully realized. Obviously McCready, uh, Kurt Russell, he gets the, the, uh, the most amount of screen time. Um, and then Childs, uh, Keith David, who's just always amazing. Like that dude should be in every movie. Um, Agreed. but he's also great. So, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more about just how you feel about uh, the character development and, and maybe those two characters uh, specifically, or if there are any, you know, side characters that, uh, that really stick out to you. Well, it's funny. Cause actually one of the things the movie got ribbed for, I, I, I went back and looked at some of these old reviews. Cause I'm like, you guys are crazy. This movie is awesome. <laughs> and some, I read and some Ebert's people, review. Ebert hated it. <laughs> yeah. Ebert hated it. But one of the things it gets ribbed for is some of the character development. And I'm going to push back hard on that because I feel like, like you were saying, you get very limited time with these characters and you have to find small ways to make them distinct uh, and make them stand out. And I feel like there's enough eccentric elements for a couple of them to immediately like windows, the guy with the jean jacket and he's at the radio the whole time and the curly hair immediately stands out. Uh, yeah. I love the chef on the roller skates. The fact that he roller skates in this isolated location tells me everything I need to know about this guy on top of the fact that he's playing Jimi Hendrix, I think late and they tell him to turn it down and he doesn't like <laughs> and he did that, that's, an, that's, that's not only just cool and a great scene, but like that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting there for him as a person mm-hmm. or the, the, the hippie looking guy who's smoking weed later. Of, and, um, He's progressively says like, oh, the government knows all about aliens. They're falling out of the sky. And it's just like those little details really go a long way, I think, in a movie like this. But and Aliens does that great, too. That's another example of coming. But it's like these movies that have such slim narrative real estate to make you like and more importantly, remember distinct characters when they Mm -hmm. do it in those great. I just I think it's an art and I think people don't give it enough credit sometimes. Um as is the case here. 
Oh yeah. There the the characters are memorable. You might while you're watching it think there's not a lot of character development, but you you walk away from this movie, you remember the roller skating chef, you remember the the guy with the sunglasses at the radio. You remember the uh you remember Gary who's the uh supposed lead who has the gun. You mm-hmm. remember the scientist, you know, you remember all of these guys uh because of how distinct they are from from each other. Uh, that it really, you know, that character development is sort of, it's sort of being done on like a subconscious level where you're not like actively like, oh, here's a full scene that fleshes out like, you know, who this character is and what their background is. Like, nope, it's a line here, it's a line there, and we and we move on. But you get it, even though you don't know that you get it. Yeah. Uh, I think the other interesting thing with the, with the cast and the characters here, is that there are no women in the movie, which. I've seen that it's been read as as a few different ways about masculinity, like masculine sexuality, things like that. But I feel like it is like it is a very purposeful touch. And, you know, I I myself am not reading into it on any sort of deeper level, but I do think that it is a really a really interesting touch for this movie. And I think that it totally makes sense for what this particular film is. Yeah, I was. so, But that goes into the paranoia thing. Um, mm-hmm. because I think what's interesting and we'll, we'll maybe get into the prequel at a certain point, cause it does have two women in the cast. Um, but for this movie in particular, what's interesting to me, especially with McCready, who's, you know, and child's, they're both drawn as these hyper masculine figures, but when th- these type of men are put in a scenario of peak paranoia with a fatal sort of creature, they turn on the, the means that they turn on each other is violence. And I, I think that's fairly interesting um, mm-hmm. because that allows, look, this, especially as a claustrophobic pressure cooker chamber piece, you know, the tension's bubbling up. And for these types of characters, when that tension bubbles up, they do react violently. And that becomes sort of, you know, it's not, and that's why I think the prequel has some really cool elements because it's more scientists versus these feel like a lot of them are alpha men that don't really – they're responding like peak masculine nature rather than thinking analytically. Oh, um, yeah. And that's, and that's kind of what makes everything bubble up here. There's a totally interesting movie about the analytical response to this that isn't what the mm-hmm. thing's about. Because they don't act rationally at all. Um, yeah. But it is interesting because McCready's first scene, the first thing we see him doing is playing chess. So you think this guy is a thinker. He's a critical thinker. He likes to plan things out. He, he's, you know, he's smart enough. He's heady enough to sort of take on whatever, whatever's coming his way. But like you said, they are the, the immediate response is one of, you know, of, defense of being defensive and ready to fight you grab your flamethrower and whenever you see the thing you you blast it away with fire you know you grab you grab a knife because you think mccready's the thing or you grab your gun and you shoot the guy with the knife because he you, you want to be defensive about uh about whether or not you're the thing or you threaten to blow up the entire base with dynamite because people are thinking that you're the thing so yeah, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but no, 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 but, but it's it's quite eloquently put because McCready's intro scene is the best version of that. You introduce him playing chess against a computer, um, so you think, okay, this guy's he might look rough around the edges, but he's an analytical thinker. That computer beats him, 
And how does he respond? He takes his, I don't know if it's Jim Bean or whatever, and pours it yeah. into the computer and destroys it because it and says cheating bitch. So it's like two elements there of he might be <laughs> an analytical thinker, but he's also the guy. I mean, that is, look, in this 80s action thing, he is that guy. So it's a very interesting, and that's why that first scene, in terms of a character intro, is excellent. Um, there might be a subtext there that's interesting of the only female voice then is the computer that he kills immediately. Um, I don't know what the reading there is, but it's just an interesting food for thought for this gender conversation. Um, Yeah. The actual, the the one actual thinker, you know, is destroyed immediately is a woman and is no longer available to, to help them throughout the rest of the movie, which might've been totally helpful. Yeah. Um, one super quick side note, uh, Kurt Russell is an absolute babe in this. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever been hotter in a movie. He, he's great. So, so we've, we've talked about this movie for a while. We've talked about a lot of really cool, different themes, different aspects of it, but we failed to mention the big selling point for the thing. When anyone is asking you, Hey, why should I watch the thing? I feel like the one big answer is the practical effects will knock you on your ass. So we're 40 minutes into this conversation. We haven't mentioned the practical effects. Connor, please just, I'm going to, we're going to go ISO mode, James Harden ball. I'm going to pass it to you and and clear out. Tell us why these practical effects are so amazing. Well, it's a twofold one because they're so unfathomably different than anything you've ever seen before. You know, I, I think it, for starters, let's contextualize this of what other movies have come. This is post alien and alien says, Hey, you, you know, ET's cute, close encounters. The, the idea of the Martians cute. I'm going to give you the HR Geiger, most disgusting version ever. Right. That's what the Xenomorph is. The thing takes that to the hundredth degree. Um, we're talking, we're beyond body horror here. There is one thing to do like a disgusting mutated dog. It's another to make it look like that. And it's another to happen. Was it 25, 30 minutes in the movie? Maybe I'm even. (laughs) I'm not going to make some broad stroke argument of no movie has ever gone. It's just, you have to see it to believe it. I mean, it really is. As Rob Boutin did the, it just, it's, it is on another planet, literally from another planet. Um, I think the defibrillator scene where to resuscitate the one guy and he puts it down and his chest mm-hmm. opens up and the mouth is probably – first of all, I think it's this movie's – if you want to put it side by side with Alien, it's his answer to the chest burster. Um, mm-hmm. But is one of the greatest – it's a great scare because we're all mm-hmm. focused on all the men squabbling amongst themselves that becomes something – it's disgusting – it's something you think about of another man's body being able to open that and bite is, you know, there's one thing to do gross out creature effects to gross out creature effects. And this movie does that. Don't get me wrong. They mm-hmm. are to gross you out. It's another to introduce ideas that like repulse you. And I think that like just time and time again, all the creature stuff in this movie is, I mean, there's a great – I forget one of the characters later on says what the audience is thinking. Well, after the defibrillator bites the guy, the doctor's hands off, 
and the head mm-hmm. falls and sprouts spider legs and walks into the shadows. And one of the characters, I think it's a hippie, just goes, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like that, that is what, what the, the audience reaction to all these things, you know, I you know, I think, I think a lot of horror today, it's not necessarily, I'm not going to use the word safe, but it's like, we're not mm-hmm. used to seeing, we don't go to a movie and see five or six sequences that make us go, Oh, whole, holy shit. And not see it coming like that. Nor does it look like that. Yeah. Um, and that's you why feel that the creative team behind it was really thinking, you know, what kind of weird stuff can we do with this scene? Like how freaky can we get? How, how much can we push ourselves to create something new and unseen? Um, like you really feel that sort of creative energy that's happening behind the camera in scenes like that. And then when the character says, what the fuck is going on here? But that, that's, and that's, and again, this is when we, we talk about movies. It is such a collect Cause that, that's, it's shot great. Narratively, that's a great look to our thesis of the fear of the unknown. Well, the indications were the moments where I'm going to show you the monster. I'm going to give you something so unbelievably disgusting and unfathomable that your idea of what this thing is, you still can't even wrap your head around it. That That's, that's great writing. Um, yeah. That's great. Okay. First of all, the guys that do creature effects, they're artists in and of themselves. And especially in the eighties, some of these, they're geniuses to be able to, first of all, create that practically, make it look how it looks. And then to make it, it's really the star of the show surrounded by all this other cast. And that's mm-hmm. everything working so well in tandem. Um, the, the dog thing gets me every time because it's like, you thought dogs were cute. We told you there's something wrong with this dog. You just thought it might've been soft. Like, no, it is so unbelievably unimaginable. Um, I just, again, this movie, um, you're right. Anyone ever talks about the thing, they talk about the creature effects because they should talk about the creature effects. Just like people talk mm-hmm. about American werewolf in London for the transformation. These in that art craft, the thing is, is, is one of the pinnacles of something that really, really, really made the practical effects, the star of the show. And it is really just, you know, hats off to everyone involved because they really made something I'm not going to use the word beautiful, but you know what I mean. It's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> it's, they, they, they made they made great art. Two things that that I read. I, I don't know if you're if you can confirm either of these, but I think I read that is it Robbie Crittman who did the practical effects. I read that Robbie. he was he was like 25 when he did this, which is absolutely insane. And they just had a team of designers, and they were all sort of. You know, the the direction was this thing. We don't know what it actually looks like. So you guys can get as creative and as bold with whatever sorts of designs and sketches you want to do. So I'm just imagining a room of, of people, you know, sketching things, like sketching the most grotesque things that they could imagine and passing them around and everyone, you know, laughing and, and joking around about which ones are great and which ones aren't. And, you know, when you think about things like that happening, that for me, that's one of the great reminders of like why I love movies like, Oh yes, there were a group of people. There was a group of people who was sitting around and decided to like, to make these things um, that we then get to watch on screen. The other great piece of trivia that I read about that, that scene is there's like a two second shot after the doctor's arms get eaten off by 
the other guy's belly. And what they did was they cast a double amputee and put a mask over his face to get that two second shot of the, Damn. <laughs> of the scientist. Oh, that's awesome. Um, no, I had no idea about that, but, but that to go back to your previous point, I mean, that's kind of the beautiful thing of all, you know, we watch movies and sometimes, you know, we also try to prescribe them to singular voices like so-and-so is responsible for this, but really it is an amalgamation of the works of a bunch of different artists with a bunch of different specialties. And when all those things can work in tandem and to create something like this, that look, this movie came out 40 years ago and we're still talking about it. Mm-hmm. Let alone when it came out, it didn't get the response it deserved. It's like the, these are, yeah, I just, you're right. It is the reminder that movies can be great and there really are, um, very creative people that can do some spectacular things. We have so many people to thank for, for the movies that we love. So I think another one of the big sort of selling points of this movie is the ending and how open ended it is and open to interpretation. It is, um, which, you know, for movies can either be a huge selling point or totally make, the whole thing fall flat on its face. I think with this movie, it is a really interesting sort of ending, not just for the, the open endedness of it, but just sort of what it means for the overall thesis of the rest of the movie. So all that being said, if you're still here with us, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the thing, uh, if you haven't seen it and you're still listening and you do want to see it and you know, there, there were some spoilers uh, ahead of this, but this is the big spoiler. Uh, we're going to get into the ending. So, Connor, what do you make of the ending? What is your reading of it? How do you think it fits into the overall thesis of John Carpenter's The Thing? Well, two things. I'm glad we had the masculinity conversation because I think it's directly related. Um, one, it's the perfect ending for a story like this. You, can, you have to have it open-ended because then that's that's, that's the fo- part of my French. That's the fucking point of the whole movie. Like, It really means to be that but the fact that those two men who've been at odds the whole movie can sit there not trust each other at all and share a drink is first of all we also started with a drink with mcgreedy so there's an interesting maybe there's an interesting analytical argument to be made um Mm -hmm. but it's the perfect you might be a monster i might be a monster we'll never trust each other we might we're gonna we're gonna die out here it is a very existential ending um But the least we can do is have a drink and die, accept fate. And it's just like, it's just a very, if it didn't end like that, I think it would betray the point of a story. You can't do a a horror movie about paranoia and confirm, it just defeats the purpose, confirming all the paranoias and and erasing all the paranoia at the very end of the movie. It just feels like the right yeah, I'm gonna gush. It's just it's how the movie should end, and I'm glad it ends that way. Uh, period. It it also to that point, uh, this movie about paranoia. It has to end with that paranoia. A movie about isolation like this, it can't end with them being rescued in like a helicopter, and you know maybe even still in that helicopter scene, there could be some some paranoia and some unease and some distrust between the two of them. But then you're missing the isolation element. So it's like, they're still isolated. They're still paranoid. They're going to die. That's kind of, you know, how it had to, how it had to happen. 
It doesn't matter if one of them is the thing. It doesn't matter if they're both the thing. It doesn't matter if neither of them is the thing. This is just what needs to happen. It's the only way that it can end. Yeah. I am wholeheartedly. Yes. I I did read uh, a theory that I don't, I would have to rewatch the movie, but I also don't know if I totally buy that child is the thing because his breath doesn't uh, produce the, you know, visible, I don't know what, what the scientific, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. verbiage for that is, but his breath isn't visible when he's breathing and it's like freezing there. So it would have to be. And that is an indication that he's the thing, but there's never like a rule that's set up for that earlier in the movie. It also feels like it might just be an oversight, uh, you know, like on set where, where it didn't happen. So uh, I don't know if you've, if you've heard that or if you really like care about whether or not either of them are the thing, or if that like doesn't mean anything to you for, for the ending. Yeah. I, I it doesn't mean much to me because like we can make analytical arguments about, you know, the anatomical of what the thing can, cannot do, can't breathe, this invisible breath is like, even if he is the thing, the point is to not know definitively. And the fact that we don't know definitively puts us in the shoes of those two men, of those two characters, of all the characters throughout the course of the, of the movie. And if a movie about those things can do that, then the narrative is successful, period. Uh, I really just, yeah, hats <laughs> off to everyone. <laughs> it, it just is, yeah. Um, they also play it so well. It, it's, it's yeah. there's a lot of, you know, look, Keith David and um, Kurt Russell are excellent in the movie, but that scene between the two of them is the cherry on top to everything. Yeah. Perfect. I love how you mentioned that it's these two men who are at odds for the entire course of the movie are now finally just, they're, they're the last ones left. They can't trust the other, so they may as well just be civil. And <laughs> there's a great lesson for, for all of us in that, you know, we we exist in this in this world with uh, people who we don't trust, who we disagree with, who we're at odds with. But you know, at the end of the day, let's just be a little civil to each other. <laughs> let's share a glass of scotch and uh, you know wait to freeze to death in in the Antarctica. <laughs> Freezing. You know, I, I, it, it's it's actually a great point because I, I I feel like horror a lot of times. You know, ho- there are a lot of good things that the horror genre can do. One of the best things it can do is through a horror scenario makes men, makes human beings put their petty human, like in the grand scheme of things, little conflicts mean nothing in the face of bigger actual horror. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's an inherent beauty of horror. And maybe I'll get shot in the face for saying this, but through the most horrific things, it allows human beings to leave that theater with the base knowledge of none of that, none of this extraneous baggage, conflict, yelling at each other, petty problems actually matters. It actually is it's an interesting genre that can remind us of just the importance of, yeah, civility, humanity. It's a very, it's a very strange thing to take a human audience, show them the face of the devil, and then remind <laughs> them that that is way scarier than you know, so-and-so who cut you off driving on the freeway. It's just a very interesting thing yeah. that horror can do. Human beings, like, man. Um, now that we're talking about it out loud, I like kind of want to say that it's a hopeful ending. I think it is too. Um, nihilism aside, that they're going to die, 
it yeah. isn't an entirely unhappy ending because what Carpenter would have done is put men through the blender, right? Literally through the blender. They get blended up. And the two men that have been kind of squabbling or whatever, peacocking the whole movie, because that's actually what they've been doing. Yeah. They can the fact that all this hell they face, they can say, you know what, man? Okay, we'll be here. And like that's that's kind of a beautiful thing. It's also kind of a happy ending because they kind of save the day, even though they don't save themselves. They do they are in theory stopping the thing from getting out to the world at large. So they kind of they completed that mission, even if they, you know, are both going to die. So it's a there's a lot of weird ways that we're making this a happy ending. But I think that that reading can certainly be there. And again, that conversation is way more interesting than like, which one of them might actually be the thing? You know, that doesn't actually or maybe maybe it does help some people, uh, you know, feel better about about the way that the movie ends. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, again, the, I'm glad you brought up the masculinity earlier because I think that's kind of, if you read the movie through that lens, that ending actually becomes quite satisfying. For sure. They're, they're able to put it aside for the greater good. Yeah. So that's the thing. We, I think we covered pretty much all of it. Before we get into recommendations and all that good stuff, Something that we've been doing a little bit during the uh, the month of Halloween, while talking about all these different horror movies, these uh, you know celebrating the spook season. One thing that's particularly sort of unique to this genre is the idea of remakes. Remakes are way more prevalent in this genre than they are in other genres. So the thing itself is a remake of a movie. Uh, from 1951, I believe. There is also what I thought was a remake for the longest time, but it is maybe not. There's a 2011 version. I know that you have some thoughts on it. So before we get into recommendations, I just want to quickly get your thoughts on you know what you think of that 2011 version. And if you have seen the original 51 version, any thoughts that you have on that as well? So I haven't seen the original 51, which is an, there's an interesting commentary there on Sometimes people's knowledge or understanding of a certain story comes from a remake rather than the actual original, which you know happens with things like Halloween sometimes too for people. Um, mm-hmm. um, and then just to fully before we get to the 2011, just because it is out there, it's worth. There's a Sci-Fi Channel with a writer named David Leslie Johnson writing, and Frank Darabont was involved. They were going to do a sequel mini series. The scripts are out there. I, Interesting. They're worth checking out because I think, first of all, David Leslie Johnson became a very great writer, um, and he was really, he was. I think he was younger when he wrote it, but those scripts are excellent of the mm-hmm. mini series. He went on to write Orphan, which I think is weirdly a perfect movie. Um, but that's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> of the Conjurings and Aquaman. But that predated what was in 2011, which is a prequel, Mm -hmm. which in a world that was also just to contextualize where we are in the horror space at that time, that's coming out post a lot of these horror remakes that we saw a lot of mean spirited slashers. Some of them were, Mm -hmm. to be honest, very great horror movies. Um, So this is in the wake of that. They They did a prequel in 2011 that essentially 
what's cool about it is, and that's why I said it's kind of like an autopsy or even of the original movie is it's about what happened in the Norwegian camp prior to the dog running. Uh, Interesting. So if you think of this as a narrative canvas, they Mm -hmm. took all the elements of what was found at that Norwegian camp, the remains of it, Mm -hmm. uh, what was the remains of the dig site and the missing block in the eye. And they found a way to make all those events true and canon and tell a very compelling thing story about pulling the thing out from the ice and the aftermath of that. And in terms of the plotting that happens, a writer named Eric Heiser wrote it, who is probably one of the best horror writers there is. Um, he famously, he was nominated for Oscar, I think for Arrival, um, but is a really just strong, like nice. you read him, he's just excellent. I think there's a really strong case to be made that the prequel, regardless of the fact that it's CGI, not practical, um, which is a kind of a bummer, um, mm-hmm. but is just a very interesting. It's cool. It's a cool narrative to watch. It is cool to see how if you watch the first one and then go back and watch the prequel right after, you'll see the level of detailing that they mined for it. And I think that's worth. You know, you ask the question of it is a genre that gets remade a lot. Um, this is a remake that feels like a love letter. Um, that if someone cared so much about those little details that they found mm-hmm. a way to make them make narrative sense in a prequel mo- standalone movie, I-, I just think is worth not only talking about, but also just like, I, I think it's a, it's a movie worth watching. I-, I really applaud that element of it. And I think it's, again, the practical stuff bums me out. Um, the CGI is, I don't think it's a sh- as shitty as maybe some critics did, but mm-hmm. this is a narrative. I think there's merit in that story um, for sure. That's interesting. Was it, was it always known to be a prequel? Am I just a total, am I a dumbass in thinking that it was a remake or was it sort of like build and sold as a remake? And then people walked into the theaters and realized, Oh, this is actually a prequel. You know, it's a, it's a good question. Cause I don't think the trailer maybe necessarily, it doesn't do one of those, remember the thing, like, this is what happened at the Norwegian camp. And the horror fans are like, we yeah. totally know what that is. And then there are, everyone else is like, what? Like, I feel like the marketing maybe doesn't sell that image, but it also mm-hmm. makes sense to not sell that image. For someone watching the thing for the first time, um, and they're say, say they're watching the 2011 prequel, remake, what have you, um, mm-hmm. it works as a, as a movie that is simultaneously a prequel for the fans but for someone who's never been familiar with that concept before, it feels like it's, oh, it's a cool creature feature. Like you could yeah. assess – because, you know, the titling is the thing again. So you would assume just remake. Um, yeah. Um, it's not like thing, day, day zero or something like that. Or, um, Norwegian thing. Yeah, the thing. And it just says the thing, the colon, the thing in Norwegian. Um, yeah. Um, uh, or the title actually, is just however you say thing in Norwegian. Yeah. But I just there again as a fan, a big fan of this movie. When I watched that prequel for the first time, regardless of the, the look, I'm, I said it like four times. The practice not being that mm-hmm. practical like, is a big bummer. Mm-hmm. That being said, as maybe a right, I just like the narrative there is, you know, I admire what they did. 
Um, at the end of the day, I admire that someone took that care and was like, I'm going to do a prequel. And all those details that I really care about, I'm going to make sure they mm-hmm. work perfectly. So if you were to watch the thing and go, hey, the, the burned body that looked like that, that was in that right place of snow, they yeah. create a horror sequence to make that happen. And I was just like, that's a very cool thing. Good for you. Good work. Nice. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I might I might check it out. I've heard – I've definitely heard mixed reviews. Uh, I know – you know, a lot of people really didn't like it, but there are, I think I've heard other, maybe not praise, but other people who support that movie. And if you're a fan of the thing, you might find some cool things within the new, the thing. It's it's yeah. a tough movie to talk about because you're just, you refer to everything, we refer to everything as, as things, but I guess that's the beauty of it. That's also talking about the prequel version of the movie that's a good sort of stepping stone into our final segment we're going to do some recommendations for the thing that version of the thing that you gave uh connor's is sort of a light recommendation so now we'll get into our actual recommendations for any new listeners that we might have out there uh for each movie that we introduce into the canon we also like to recommend uh three things that you should check out if you enjoy said movie so one of those recommendations has to be another movie we uh advise that that movie is not something that is already in the canon the other two things can be anything else in the world it can be uh a m- more movies it could be a tv show it could be books it could be documentaries it could be comic books it could be uh someone i not someone I did a restaurant once. So we like to get really weird with it. We like to make the connections as loose as possible. Connor, if you're ready for recommendations, I'm ready for recommendations and we can jump into this thing. We'll bounce them off one by one. So you'll give your first, then I'll give my first so on and so forth. My friend, are you ready? Yes, sir. Let's, let's do it. Um, us off. So I'm going to, the first one I'll recommend is a TV mini series. Weirdly enough, it's called the head. It was a HBO Max, like international production. It's the Pastor mm. Brothers. It is the Agatha Christie version of the thing. Um, they actually watched the thing in the pilot, um, which is about the most obvious love letter to um, this <laughs> as you can get. But that, and, and that's where I think the thing becomes pretty satisfying of it's a murder mystery down there in the Arctic. It's pretty gnarly. Um, I don't want to spoil too much, um, but let's just say someone loses a head and that triggers an investigation about who might be responsible. Uh, I think it's six episodes. It really takes advantage of the elements, the isolated location. There's a great snowed in submerged uh, research facility. The set design is awesome. Um, it has some tricks up its sleeve that I think are satisfying. It plays into the same paranoia, just in a peripheral subgenre, which is cool to see an arena that was once one of the greatest creature features ever made done for like a true detective brooding sort of murder mystery. It's really international too, which is actually a very cool element of, well, if you're down there, that's all that's down there is all these different countries research. So it plays into that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good little – I think it's like six hours. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's a little less. It's a good watch. Um, that sounds that sounds like fun. That sounds super rad. Might add that to the watch list. Sweet. 
I'm going to go with all my recommendations are going to be movies with various connection points to the thing. The first one, which I sort of didn't want to be a recommendation, but I just have to do it because it's one of my favorite movies ever. It pains me so much that it's not in the canon, but the guy who plays windows, who is the, the radio operator, he also has a bit part in the warriors and Connor, I'm pretty sure you're also Yes. I, I would. Yeah. The warriors, is, the warriors is awesome. Such a good movie. I watched, I rewatched a couple of months ago. Arrow recently announced a new 4K like steelbook box set of it that I ordered immediately. So The Warriors is one of my favorite movies ever. Windows is also, I think he plays Fox in The Warriors. And the first time I watched the thing, I was like, that guy, that guy is in The Warriors. This movie is already cool. So as much as I didn't really want to recommend it for this movie, I just, I have to. So. That's my first pick. Cool. Um, well, then I'll follow suit and do a movie as well. Um, I'm going to recommend – it was a couple years ago. Hold on. I should get the year. Um, it was like one or two years ago. Um, hold on. Uh, 2020. It's a Russian horror movie called Sputnik. Have you ever seen it? I've heard of this. I, I haven't seen it. But I have heard of it. it. You may have been the one who uh, – I might have been the one who said, oh, you should go watch yeah. Sputnik. Um, yeah. It is not spoiling much. It is a creature feature that deals also with an extraterrestrial. Uh, maybe that's too much of a spoiler. It's a it's a creature. All right, all right. The, the cat's out of the bag. The monster's out of the box. Um, it's a creature feature um, <laughs> that takes place in the aftermath of a Russian uh, Sputnik crash, and there's a survivor. And there's something weird going on. So they bring in an expert to investigate. And it strangely reminds me of a marriage between three movies that are going to sound strange to put side by side. But I'll explain why I put the last one there. <laughs> um, it's a marriage between The Thing. It's a marriage between Alien. And it's a marriage between The Exorcist. And the only okay. reason I put The Exorcist in that equation is sometimes we forget that one of the best parts – The Exorcist is obviously – in the pantheon of greatest horror movies ever. Mm-hmm. We forget how scientific it is prior mm-hmm. to the exorcism that again, structurally people forget it doesn't really happen in the last 20 minutes of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really scientific approach to figure out what's wrong with her. So it reminds me a lot of that, figuring out what's wrong with this astronaut and as, and it's dealing. So that's happening in the middle of KGB secrecy. And mm-hmm. it's just a really, it's a contained movie. It has good payoffs. If you like these sort of classic monster movies with an alien sort of element and you like that creature sort of stuff, I find it a very satisfying movie. Um, it was one of those splashy movies that you know was good enough that enough people started – I think XYZ might have put it out or something like that. But enough mm-hmm. people started to talk about it and it got the platform it deserves. I really think it's a strong Sweet. horror movie. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that sounds okay. That sounds awesome. I'm going to have to check that one out too. These are great picks. I was, I feel like you're more well-versed in the like horror genre at large than I am, obviously, but I think otherwise we have a lot of similar 
tastes and sensibilities in movies. So I was worried that some of the picks that I had would maybe be things that, that you would have on your list, but it seems like you're going a little bit deeper with your recommendations than I am. So I, I feel like I'm safe. Yeah. That well, I accept your recommendation of the warriors. Everyone should always watch that. It's a great masterpiece. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, we always have to recommend the warriors. So the next recommendation that I'm, that I'm going to do is also kind of a conventional pick. It, I'm not, I don't think I'm going as deep as, as you are with, with your recommendations, but one thing that we didn't really talk about with the thing is that this is one of the few uh, cold spooky movies. There aren't a whole lot of cold, snowy, spooky movies. You know, snow is usually reserved for happy Christmas movies, but there are a few great ones and I'm going to recommend one of them. I'm going to recommend, I believe it's 2011 Swedish film, Let the Right One In. Uh, the vampire movie about it's like a teenage girl uh, vampire living somewhere in uh, in Northern Europe. And that movie kicks ass. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember that it distinctly kicks ass and there's a lot of snow. So that's my second pick. Yeah, it does kick ass. Um, there, there also, there are a lot of, first of all, why they haven't done a Friday the 13th sequel in the snow with a hockey mask villain is beyond me, but uh, maybe someday. Yeah. Um, um, what was it? So, hmm. Can we do some, uh, can we do some extraneous in the wake of these? I think, cause the third thing I'll recommend just for the sake of the conversation and because we're talked about the thing and, mm-hmm. Maybe it's comes from a background, but I, I do also recommend people, if you really respond to the thing and you do like reading scripts, you should look up that uh, David Leslie Johnson's thing. I think it's called The Thing Returns. It's a proper, there's too many series scripts. Um, they're out there on the internet. Maybe it's not great to recommend scripts that have leaked on the internet, but they are out there. And I think he continues the story in a really terrific manner that not to spoil things, but uses that ending we talked about as a jumping off point in a particularly satisfying way for a, what would, would have been probably one of those epic TV, you know, it was right when sci-fi was doing those awesome, may I grew up on them, these monster movies of the week that had real low budget that this would have been like the definitive mini series version of that. It's awesome. It deals with small towns. It has all the great classic horror textures. I think he knocked the first of all, he knocked the script out of the park, but it's just like not in a teasy way of like what could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, if you like this story and you like the setup, it's a very fun read to see where it could have gone in a, and believe me, he brings the creature feature elements very, very hard I and very, it. very strong. I, I really am. It's one of those things I'm bummed we didn't get to see in the flash. Um, yeah, yeah, that sucks that it didn't that it never got made. Uh, that's a great recommendation, and you know, everyone can do a quick Google search, and and if you find it, you find it. Give it a read. That's yeah. a great. That's a great third pick. I love it. So, yeah, I always I always have a list of like usually around five movies that I want to recommend, and when I get to the third choice, it's always such a <laughs> such a hard pick of like which one is going to make the cut and which ones will be recycled for a later episode. But I think 
I think I know which one I'm going to go with for my third pick. I don't know if this is a movie that we've talked about. I feel like it's one that you would enjoy, uh, even if it's not something that you totally, you know, support the way that you, you know, love the thing. I feel like it's a movie that you you would dig. But sort of going with that paranoia vibe of more, you know, with that Agatha Christie sort of whodunit um, kind of story, but a movie that came out pretty recently that I feel like does that in a really, really, really fun way. And that's really the only connection point that it has to the thing. But I know a lot of people didn't really like it, but I think Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is like a pretty cool, fun movie. I saw it, yeah. Um, there's the... the... <laughs> I think the ending is really satisfying. I think really the ending is super satisfying. Yeah. Um, for for many different reasons. Well, just it's hilarious. Um, I don't want to spoil it, but the ending, the ending of the movie is the reason it deserves to exist. Um, I think there's, first of all, it's, there's a great, it's a great platform for all these super talented young actresses, but the, mm-hmm. yes, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm cutting in. The ending makes it worth watching. I recommend to. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> no, it, I mean, look, it, it's definitely, it has its low points, but like you said, it's a great showcase for a lot of really cool uh young actresses and the ending is is pretty satisfying and it will satisfy different people for different reasons we'll just leave it at that before connor before we say our final goodbyes let's just run through the recommendations one two three boom 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 really quick uh for anyone who who may have missed it the first time around okay so recommendation number one was the head on hbo max a mini series recommendation number two was a movie called Sputnik, Russian horror movie from 2020 that is great creature stuff. And recommendation three is searching on the internet for David Leslie Johnson's The Thing Returns scripts. They're very, very strong and would have been an awesome thing to watch. Sweet. I've got The Warriors, and I failed to mention the actor's name, but Thomas G. Waits is the guy who plays Windows and and Fox. Uh, He's our connection point for that recommendation. So The Warriors is number one. Let the right one in is number two, and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is number three. Connor McKnight, thank you so much for joining. This was a super fun episode. Um, thank you for all of your insight. I, I hope you had half as much fun as I had talking about the thing. I know it's one of your favorite movies, so it's always fun to have someone on on the show who is a genuine fan of whatever movie we're talking about, and I, I, I feel like that came through. No, they, thank you for having me. This is a riot. Um, anything that gives the thing the platform it deserves, worth it. So it was wonderful. Any anything that that folks can uh, you know be on the lookout for from from you? Uh, anything that that you want to plug, or is everything under wraps at the moment? I would say everything's under wraps, but um, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll, uh, Post strike, we'll we'll see how the uh, the things shape up. But yeah, uh, Screen Age, once again, Connor McKnight, everything is under wraps for now that he's working on, but you will see his name on a ton of great projects all around. Be on the lookout. Uh, thank you again for for joining the canon. Listeners, thank you for joining us. We will we'll be back next week with The Shining. And uh, until then, stay safe, stay spooky, and we, we will see you at the cinemas. Mm-hmm.